Rethink Retail, the evolution of retail in today's connected world. Welcome to the Rethink Retail Show, your source for the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. Join host Julia Raymond, Global Director of Research at Valtech, a global digital agency focused on strategy and transformation in retail, as she explores the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. This episode of Rethink Retail, sponsored by Valtech, where experiences are engineered. Hi, and welcome to the show. Today, our guest is retail strategist, Carol Speakerman. She's president of Speakerman Retail, a strategic retail consulting, training, and speaking firm, helping a variety of clients from brand marketers and agencies to solution providers and tech companies. Carol, will you describe a bit more about yourself and what you do? Yeah, it's great to be with you, Julie. I'll be happy to. Well, I help a crazy diverse group of retail stakeholders, including retailers and brand marketers, tech companies, agencies, and others, relevantly position the great stuff that they already do. That's sort of the baseline first step. And then from there, I help them navigate retail from now to next, making those next stage decisions. But the cornerstone of my work and really what underpins everything that I do is are my retail trajectories. And these are themes that I'm constantly creating and tracking and mapping across all kinds of categories and borders and business models and touch points. So the trajectories create a common language that points to clear calls to action for all of those diverse retail stakeholders that are now you know, part of this big retail ecosystem. They sort of apply to everyone regardless of where they sit in retail and you know, at what stage their business is. Great, and how many trajectories are on your list? It seemed like there were a good amount. <laughs> well, at any given time, I'm tracking 30 or 40 trajectories, and I sort of curate them, you know, for various speaking engagements, for what's relevant to specific clients, and, you know, a lot of them have withstand the test of time, and I continue to talk about some and how they've evolved, you know, that, that I identified, you know, 10 years ago, and then others are, you know, much more recent. Great. Yeah, I, I like the way it kind of breaks it down, you know, and it's easy to mind map sort of the different areas that are important for retailers today. And so one of the ones that definitely stuck out is your trajectory diversify or die. You say that growth depends on diversification into new business models, categories, and channels. Just really broad, how are retailers accomplishing this? Well, the difference is, and, and the focus on diversification is, is talking about the new ways that retailers and those, you know, as part of the retail ecosystem are driving growth. You know, before it used to be all about opening more stores. That was pretty much the, the go-to option. But now there's a sort of a tidal wave of diversification that is primarily business model and format diversification. And it sort of cascades from one thing to the next and everything's sort of connected. So an example of that is, you know, looking at how retailers have built up their digital platforms. Well, now they're looking at the investments that they've made in those platforms and they're you know, taking a page from Amazon and saying, hey, let's open our own third-party marketplaces, you know, a completely new business model and inviting third-party sellers onto those marketplaces. But this is a way for retailers to, you know, sort of recoup the investments that they've made in their digital platforms. But kind of back to that cascading effect, it also allows them to diversify even further into new categories. And through these third-party sellers, they can achieve that practically overnight. They can do it without carrying additional inventory or overtaxing their supply chains. So it's a really attractive diversification strategy. But they're also diversifying into services and solutions. You know, they're becoming 
healthcare providers. They're creating their own in-house ad agencies. They're becoming media companies and content providers. They're even hooking up with one another, you know, to the point to where they're selling their private brands to their competitors. So one of the fundamental principles that I, you know, again, sort of underpins everything that I talk about is just a simple fact. You know, retailers are no longer just places that sell stuff. They're quickly evolving into looking and operating a lot more like those lean, mean technology platforms that they've been modeling their businesses after, that they've been partnering with, and increasingly even acquiring. So going forward, it's about building up their platforms through diversification and then forging platform partnerships beyond that to monetize those platforms and also to fill in any gaps. Great. That makes a lot of sense. So instead of opening stores, you said kind of changing business model, thinking about diversifying the format through media, through partnerships. When you talk about third-party marketplaces, do you have any examples that come to mind of retailers that are doing well with that new business model? Well, you know, retailers aren't necessarily breaking out those figures, but, right. uh, and I would say it's kind of in early stages. You know, Walmart has a very highly developed marketplace. They were one of the first ones to really go you know, head first into that model. Uh, Target has, you know, jumped on board. And, you know, you've got, it's, what's interesting is it's, it's a, it's becoming a really attractive proposition for some of these category killers, because you look at Staples, for example, they really are relying on this third-party marketplace model, because they're, you know, a lot of these category killers are looking at these ones that have you know gone out of business and they're saying wow it's really dangerous these days to be a category killer because anytime amazon decides to attack one of those categories you're in trouble so these third-party marketplaces are a way for these retailers to diversify into new categories to sort of mitigate that terror of category killing so now i mean you can go on staples.com and order clinique makeup so it's kind of gotten wow. to that point <laughs> right that's surprising yeah I see what you're saying. Okay, so Walmart, maybe the big players are, are leading the way, but we might see that um, in even smaller categories or apparel retailers. Yeah, you know, again, just a, a great diversification strategy. And once, you know, retailers have built up those digital platforms, thrown all those resources at them, the next step is to say, well, how do we monetize this? And one of the seemingly easiest ways, uh, you know, although there are lots of pitfalls, it's a complex model and it's not to be taken lightly, is to say, well, let's just welcome, you know, third-party sellers onto our marketplace. And a lot of retailers are seeing it essentially as just passive income. Yeah. And when we talk about all these investments, especially in digital, we hear a lot about physical and digital spaces becoming indistinguishable. So as retailers are, you know, diversifying and your one trajectory, the next trajectory you talk about is the store is still the core. How do they blend those physical and digital spaces? Well, you know, that really is the, the new frontier. But what's interesting is, you know, as much attention as digital has been getting, brick and mortar has actually never been more relevant, but for different reasons than in the past. You know, I think so much of the excitement actually and so much of the innovation is going to be in the brick and mortar space because, you know, going back to what we just talked about, after years of retailers just throwing resources at, you know, to build up their digital platforms, you know, frankly, some of their stores were getting kind of musty and uh, outdated and really not nearly as exciting to shop as, as shopping online. So retailers are now swinging their attention back to their stores. They're sprucing them up, they're doing remodels, and then they're starting to think about ways that they can leverage those stores 
as a way to even, you know, synergize and enhance their digital businesses. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, stores are billboards for retailers' brands. And they're also, retailers are realizing, a really big part of their convenience proposition. You know, just when we thought that Amazon had redefined convenience as being digital. Well, it turns out not every shopper in every occasion or in, in every category or any time of day even thinks that digital is always the answer or always the most convenient. So stores are becoming a real convenience opportunity for retailers or part of the overall convenience mix. They're also becoming a facilitation point, you know, for buy online, pick up in store. And they really are going to be ground zero for a lot of that innovation I was talking about, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality, dynamic pricing, a lot of that stuff's going to start coming to life in stores. So, you know, I, I call it the digital rethinking of physical retail. And I think that's going to be where it starts. And that's going to be where it all starts blurring is actually coming from the stores rather than from digital to the stores. Right. And it sounds kind of like they're playing catch up a little bit from what you said in general, focusing more on digital the past five or so years and now refocusing on the physical store. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, well put. The catch up initially was, oh my gosh, we have to catch up in the digital space. You know, here comes Amazon. But now right. they're saying, wait, we've been neglecting our stores. But also they're seeing that opportunity you know, for about five minutes, a lot of retailers were panicked thinking that their stores were liabilities. And now they're looking at their stores and saying, wait a minute, this is uh, really key to our overall digital strategy. And stores accomplish, you know, in a way or a gateway to digital for retailers that do it right. Mm -hmm. Totally. And the next trajectory, I know I'm moving a little quick, but it's because this one really is, is very similar to the store is still the core trajectory. And we might call it its crazy cousin, let your flagship fly trajectory. I really like how you named that one. And it's interesting because I think this one is somewhat polarizing because here you say, although the focus is largely on small formats, there's a new wave of flagship stores and all are the gateway to digital. So I wanted to see what you meant by that because some people you know, say they shouldn't focus as much on the flagships. Yeah, well, it, I like to talk about flagship stores because you know, again, they're, they've never been more relevant, but for different reasons than in the past. And again, small formats have rightfully been getting a lot of attention. They make sense for a lot of retailers, but flagship stores drive awareness and retailers can selectively use these flagship stores to create a banner presence in a major market and then continue that relationship once the hook is set in the digital space. I mean, you look at a retailer like Uniqlo, you know, out of Japan. What's been really key to their U.S. expansion strategy, you know, they didn't say, okay, let's start creating a bunch of little Uniqlo's and put them in strip centers around the U.S. Instead, they stuck with that flagship model those huge Uniqlo stores that just drive incredible brand awareness and just stuff to the gills with product. And then once again, they've driven that awareness, once those shoppers and in many cases, travelers and tourists and people from other countries go back to their home base, they can continue that relationship with Uniqlo online. It can be sort of a hub and spoke strategy to use these flagships. But you look at brands like Nike, for example, going back to that business model diversification, you know, Nike has announced that they're going to become much more discriminating with their wholesale relationships, you know, selling to retailers. But what are they doing to complement that strategy? They're opening up these big, impressive, experiential, bells and whistles, spare no expense, flagship locations. 
But the big takeaway too is that these flagships for companies like Nike are really important because they're like giant laboratories that are just teeming with experiments. So for multi-model companies like Nike, they can you know, take the insights that they get from those experiments and then they can deconstruct them and then parlay them to their other business models, including possibly their wholesale business. So flagships accomplish a lot for retailers, but again, very different from the, what they were in the past. Yeah, and it sounds like there's a few different, obviously context is key in a lot of discussions we have. So like Uniqlo, for them penetrating the market by having a large presence in major cities in the US makes total sense. And that was a really smart strategic move, as you said. And then Nike building up their brand awareness um, in big cities makes sense because they're also their innovation hubs and they get a lot of maybe coverage in the media. Yeah, they absolutely drive lots of buzz. And of course, with social media, the shoppers and consumers become part of the marketing strategy as they share stories and share the experiences that they're having in those stores. I just like to pull in recent news. I know this one might be a weird example just because of their past publicity, but for Abercrombie & Fitch just a few days ago, they were announcing closing three of their flagship stores and the CEO was saying that the customer today just isn't responding to our flagships. What's kind of your take on that? Because I think it contradicts, but again, it's the context. Well, you know, Abercrombie, you know, on the surface, it could seem that they're running counter to the trajectory. But when you look a little closer, I mean, so far, they're only closing three flagship stores, I believe. There's, I think, the Hollister store, which, you know, is a brand spinoff in New York City. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the Abercrombie flagships in Japan and Milan. So, so, so far, it's actually a pretty conservative pruning, especially considering you could say that Abercrombie perhaps went too far with the flagship strategy. But I think it would be a really big mistake for them to abandon flagships altogether. And I actually don't think that's what they're planning on doing. Because, you know, going back to that brand awareness, you know, brand awareness is so important for Abercrombie and Fitch. And particularly at a time when you look at Amazon, you know, just creating piles of private brands. Yeah. <laughs> in, particularly in apparel, practically overnight, to a degree that no other retailer has ever attempted, that brand awareness is the big differentiator for Abercrombie and Fitch. And, you know, flagships drive that awareness. But on the other side of the coin, you know, they are going to be focusing on smaller formats as well. And that makes a lot of sense, too, because, you know, those smaller format stores, you know, they they've got the data now, they can drive greater productivity out of those stores at, at less cost. You know, they can, uh, again, sort of that digital transformation, those can serve as a gateway and a facilitation point for their digital business. So what I see happening, you know, the real story with Abercrombie is that they're actually doing away with their sort of middling performing medium-sized stores, you know, the ones that they've always had, and they're paring those down into smaller formats. And I'm betting and hoping that they're going to continue to complement that strategy with a selective flagship presence. And I think that will be striking that perfect balance. Yeah. And do you think that we'll see that happen with, with a number of brands, especially for apparel? Well, it makes sense for a lot of established brands, I think, to, again, to have that sort of hub and spoke model to where they have the flagships, the flagship locations. And when they open other locations that they are are those really nimble, highly efficient, small formats that are, yes, connected to their digital business. And there's the interactivity and the synergy, you know, between those stores and the digital uh, side of the house. And then augmenting that, of course, with e-commerce. And yes, perhaps even selective presence on other retailers and other uh, e-commerce platforms. 
you know, that's not out of the question for some of these brands that have built up a lot of brand equity and, you know, they have their own branded product, you know, sometimes it makes sense to actually be on other retailers marketplaces to drive scale. Right. For scale, that makes sense. And we're talking a lot about brand. Obviously, you're saying that the flagships really impact the brand and that's very important for all the innovations that some of these retailers are planning. But when we talk about digitally native brands, which are a hot topic, um, you know, the Untuckets, the Aways, the Allbirds, a lot of them can't afford to open their physical locations at first. Um, and there's a lot of advantages from being digital first. So what questions should they be asking to determine whether or not to open physical stores and also where to place flagships? Well, you know, it's a big consideration, but it's interesting. These digitally native brands go in with a lot of advantages because they have that robust data from the digital space that goes way beyond just your traditional brick and mortar point of sale data. So they know a lot more about their customers than retailers that would start just from the ground up with a brick and mortar strategy. So, you know, they technically, you know, from the day they hang a shingle, their assortments are already optimized, they know their target customer, and they probably already built up, you know, some brand equity and brand loyalty. But when it comes to, you know, opening the stores, I mean, I break it down into what I call the three M's, you know, in terms of consideration sets, and that's mix, media, and message. So the questions to ask, you know, is to think about the mix you know, what role will stores play in the overall mix in terms of how those stores will drive, you know, affinity and awareness in ways that they are not accomplishing in the digital space? You know, how are they looking at how uh, those stores complement their digital presence, their existing digital presence? And then in terms of media, you know, I've been saying for a while that every retailer is a media company. But that's actually even more true for these digitally native brands because, you know, they're digital natives, they're content, very content aware companies and very media aware companies. So it's thinking about how those stores are going to integrate with their overall media strategy and how the stores will actually be a medium to deliver that third component, which is the message. But again, you know, digitally native brands are not being as cautious about opening stores perhaps as you know traditional retailers because they do go in with these advantages and they can have you know highly productive stores right from the moment that they open them the big question becomes you know how many and whether it should be you know to your opening point should it be a temporary presence or should they go for you know permanent locations yeah, like one example, I know Wayfair is now opening their first retail store, I think in August. And that's another example, but that's a little bit different because they offer, you know, larger items. It's not just like, you know, sunglasses or makeup, right? So what's your take on that move specifically? Well, in Wayfair's case, you know, it remains to be seen if they're going to make, you know, it used to be it, that when retailers opened a store, it was a signal. It was, okay, there's going to be more to come. And in fact, retailers usually put out press releases and they would say, okay, we're going to open this many by this date, this many by that date. And you would have these, you know, rollout plans into, you know, looking three and five years down the road. Well, these days they're kind of playing it a little bit closer to the vest. And every time they open a store, it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be another one. In Wayfair's case, you know, it remains to be seen because that store is actually, my understanding is it's going to be a little bit more like a warehouse store not a traditional Wayfair branded small format or a typical retail store. 
So it could be Wayfair testing the water, you know, for future locations, or it could be just a single location and they don't go any further with it. You know, again, that would have been an anomaly not that long ago, but these days plenty of brands are saying, you know what, one, two stores were good. Yeah, and I think Wayfair might be an interesting example, and I think that you're right. We might see them, you know, just open and test out with that one store and not expand versus, you know, like Warby Parker expanding very rapidly and making a lot of statements about how many stores are opening and getting a lot of that public hype. Um, Yep. As you could say. Yeah, and to your point, I mean, the Wayfair story was largely people sort of seeking it out and digging it up. It wasn't like Wayfair was going, hey, we're in the retail business. You know, it was definitely a little bit of a stealthy play that got uncovered and then, you know, publicized. Mm-hmm. I, I could definitely see that just because of how it played out. So I want to circle back a little bit. You had talked about, you know, moving into more convenience as far as retailers strategy goes earlier. And one of your trajectories is kill with convenience, mm-hmm. in which you say that convenience is redefined and the standards have been expanded. When retailers want to kill it with convenience, price can be secondary and they can't afford to force customers into options that only make sense for the retailer. Um, What are examples of this or what what do you mean by forcing customers into options? Well, you know, it wasn't that long ago that that some retailers, you know, Gap and some others sort of trotted out, you know, one or two options and they said, okay, this is what we're going to steer our customers into doing. You know, they're going to have one option. It's going to be buy online and pick up in store and it's going to look like this. Or some retailers were saying, you know, we're going to do this one other thing, but it's going to, you know, it's going to cost them. You know, and now retailers have quickly realized that any time that they curtail choice, they really are playing with fire. I mean, if for no other reason, a handful of big retailers are offering so many convenience options these days. And on top of that, what retailers have realized is that different customers define convenience differently. You know, they used to try to sort of pigeonhole particular customers and create these personas around them and say, okay, this is how that customer likes to shop. Well, not only is that no longer the case, but the same customer can define convenience differently depending on the category they're shopping, the occasion, um, or even the time of day. So retailers have realized that they can't be heavy handed with that. They have to throw lots of options out there in order to keep these shoppers playing on their platforms. So it's really sort of an all of the above situation where you've got, you know, home delivery, buy online, pick up in store, pick it up in the parking lot, you know, kiosks and, you know, robotic product delivery mechanisms in the front of the store and so on. But, you know, what I found really interesting, kind of going back to Walmart, because, you know, they really are on the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff. Here's Walmart, a company that has probably some of the most robust data in all of retail. So they know which options their customers are using the most. And they also, of course, know which ones are more profitable for Walmart. But what are they doing? Instead of looking at that and saying, okay, we're going to parse it, you know, narrow it down to this, and we're only going to offer these couple of things that are profitable for us and that our customers like well enough, and we're going to scrap all this other stuff that's kind of noisy and difficult to execute. No, instead, Walmart is continuing to create all these new options. Um, And it seems like they're doing that, you know, every month they're announcing something new, some new convenience capability that may or may not gain traction with shoppers. But they're doing that because they want customers to keep playing on their platform. And again, when you're a retailer, you know, that big, that's as diversified as they are, that means that 
when you have those convenience options and those customers stay with you, then you have an opportunity, yes, to sell more products, but also to introduce them to your services and solutions. And again, to just kind of keep them playing on your platform. So retailers have realized that at the end of the day, if they do it right, it's much better to offer that choice. And also too, knowing that, you know, recent data has backed up the fact that having convenience is actually more important than having a low price for many shoppers and in many occasions. So a lot of times they'll look the other way or say, well, you know what, I don't need to save a few cents or a buck here or a buck there if it's more convenient. So it can actually be better for retailers bottom lines to just offer these myriad options than to try again to sort of be heavy handed about it and coerce them to, to try one or two. Um, and again, possibly risk them jumping off onto another retailer's platform. So could you almost say that convenience can be defined by options, that that really is the, the meaning of offering convenience? Well, I actually say that all the time, that convenience and choice have become synonymous in retail. Okay. That's a good soundbite. That makes that makes total sense. You're saying a blanket approach maybe is better when you're offering convenience, especially when it comes to maybe something like shipping options or delivery options. Do you think it's better to just implement all at once? Does it depend on the retailer? Because I, I think of Target coming to mind. I know that they had some hiccups when they did their buy online, pick up in store program rollout. So I'm just wondering how would retailers approach that if they haven't already? Well, you know, you can't really say that anybody would be capable of doing it all at once because it's constantly evolving. You know, they, they continue to gain new capabilities. And, you know, one of my other trajectories that is really so pervasive in retail right now, and I don't think talked about enough, is what I call buy, build, or bridge. You know, this is retailers' biggest question with every decision that they make. Should we build it internally? Should we partner with someone else to accomplish it, you know, build those bridges, or should we rely on an outright acquisition in order to own this capability, you know, but get it fast? And so convenience really plays into that because retailers, you know, like Target, what did they do? They went and made an investment in shipped Mm -hmm. because, you know, they've been humbled in the past and realized, hey, we cannot create everything that we need to have internally. And sometimes we're going to have to step out of the target system and we're going to have to make acquisitions or we're going to have to partner with others in order to get this done. So that plays a role in this too, is, you know, a lot of times we just assume, oh, retailers own all of these solutions. Well, no, not all of them, but they have to decide when it makes sense to move faster. And in some cases go outside of the organization in order to make things happen. And convenience is where a lot of that is coming to life and where a lot of those decisions become really important as these third-party companies become really attractive for acquisition or partnership to help retailers really kill with convenience. I like how you tied in that trajectory because it makes a lot of sense um, that they will have to consider (laughs) buying, building, or bridging if they're going to cover all their bases. Thank you, Carol, for joining the show. And also, where can people go if they want to hear more about the other trajectories on your list? They can go to my website at speakermanretail.com. It's not phonetically spelled. It's S-P-I-E-C-K-E-R-M-A-N. You can find me on Twitter at Retail Expert, which is Retail X-P-E-R-T. Those are probably the two best ways. Of course, I'm on LinkedIn and all of the other platforms as well. And I do have a page of my current trajectories on my website, and I'm constantly updating that. 
And of course, if you look at my calendar and my speaking engagements, all of my presentations are centered around curating these trajectories. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Carol. I enjoyed having you on the show today. It was an absolute pleasure, Julia, and have a great day. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Rethink Retail. For all the latest news on commerce and trends, join the discussion, rethink.industries.com.